This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is a show that we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. So make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here, as well as getting some killer free stuff by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show, but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction, such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, even relationship management and breakups. That stuff is all obviously extremely important to your success, so make sure you get a handle on that as well. We've also got our boot camps and our live training running every single week here in Hollywood, California. Details on that at theartofcharm.com or just give us a call or even email me, Jordan H. at The Art of Charm, and I'll tell you exactly what you need to know to get started with that. I'm looking forward to meeting all you guys here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with Guy Winch, PhD, author of Emotional First Aid. It's just like the title sounds. I mean, we teach four-year-olds to brush their teeth and handle cuts, but we never address emotional wounds, even as adults. In this show, we're going to talk about the thought processes behind things like rejection, failure, loneliness, etc., and why we numb ourselves with substances and, less obviously, bad habits that actually sabotage ourselves and drown out our pain, but also drown out some of our confidence and damage our self-esteem. We're also going to talk about how we secretly use avoidance to, wait for it, avoid bad feelings, and how this makes things worse and how to break that cycle. And of course, if you're chronically lonely and you might not even know it, we discuss how loneliness has serious health risks, so listen up on how to avoid those, as well as dig yourself out of that rut, and adaptive versus maladaptive ways to deal with stress, rejection, and failure, how rejection is nearly the same as physical pain, and of course, why we're our own worst enemy in terms of low self-esteem and what we can do about it. So enjoy this one with Guy Winch. I just kind of want to talk first about why should people listen to you and what have you created that you're, that you're going to share with us here? So first of all, I, I'm, a, I'm a trained psychologist and I've been a psychologist for over 20 years. But that notwithstanding, I have opinions about things, but what I tend to do when I have them is I go to the library, I look at the science, and I try to see what science backs up what I think. And if the science doesn't back up what I think or contradicts what I think, then I start adapting what I think to what the science is telling me. And so usually the opinions that I have or the advice that I give or the takes that I have on things are, are rooted in what the science of the moment tells us, albeit in psychology, the science of the moment tends to change moment by moment, but a lot of it doesn't. So I, I do try and root my opinions, my advice, my thoughts on where the field is scientifically. Okay. So you don't just make up science to back up your opinions like a lot of people do. Oh, no, no. I definitely do not make up <laughs> okay. science. No. Got, it, got it. And your book, Emotional First Aid, the title got me because I thought emotional first aid, that's funny because I'm, you know, everybody knows that when you slip and fall and scrape your knee, which I haven't done in decades. But when a kid does it, you 
wash it off and you might put some ointment on it and you put a bandage on it. And regardless of whether or not that's the perfect procedure, it's pretty good. But if somebody hurts my feelings, I pretty much have no clue what to do. And if somebody hurts a kid's feelings, the more I think about it, the more I, I just probably would say something like my mother said, which is, oh, those other kids are just jealous or whatever sort of cliche. I have no idea how to fix that or, or even go about approaching the right way to do that. And I think we do that as adults too, right? We really don't have a clue. It's part of why I wrote the book because I, actually it galled me a little bit, to be honest. It, it always annoyed me that we teach four-year-olds how to brush their teeth. And, you know, the minute they, they get a cut, the neck, they actually run to the medicine cabinet and, and take out the Flintstones Band-Aid and put it on and very proudly show you their boo-boo. But if you ask them and if you ask adults how you dress a wound that's emotional, indeed, we have no clue. Now, if we didn't have a clue scientifically as well, if there was no knowledge or no information about that, fine, we just don't know that yet. But in fact, there is, and there are a lot of things we do know about how to deal with these kinds of daily emotional wounds like the cuts and the scrapes and the colds, but in the emotional domain, except we don't have that information out to the public. And in part, because the way the science is done is not public-friendly. It's very, I mean, even for trained psychologists to read some of these studies, it's laborious. It's, it's, it's scientists speaking to scientists, not scientists speaking to therapists or not scientists certainly speaking to the public. So what I did in the book is I tried to look at the science and then distill it and translate it to uh, things people can actually use in their day-to-day lives, uh, of which there were many. Yeah, that makes sense. It's good to talk to somebody who's uniquely qualified to answer this stuff, not just by your degree, but possibly by your really awesome accent, which makes you sound smarter than everybody else. And it seems strange because I think a lot of us don't even really know where these, if I get a cut on my elbow, I know it's on my elbow, it's bleeding, the pain is right there. If I have an emotional wound, I might, or a friend does, right? I might be like, hmm, that's weird. Jasmine has a weird eating disorder. It doesn't, it's not because she ate something bad once and now she has an eating disorder. It's because her father treated her badly when she was little or something. I mean, the, the wounds are less obvious or rather the wounds might be really obvious, but the causes are less obvious. So how do you start to treat something that's buried? or masked, or camouflaged? Well, actually, I think a lot of the times the causes are are kind of obvious. And the kinds of wounds that I talk about in the book, you know, rejection, or failure, or guilt, or loneliness, uh, those are the daily kinds of things. In other words, when, when someone gets dumped by a woman he's been seeing, or when somebody writes to 20 women online and only gets one response and that one isn't a great response, and they feel rejected, and they're walking around feel rejected, feeling rejected and dejected, or they're walking around telling their friends about, yeah, you know, I thought the date went well, but now she won't return my calls. It's very clear what the wound was. When, when, when somebody tries to get a promotion and doesn't get it, and feels really bad about that, or you know, tries to get into graduate school and doesn't get in and feels bad about that, it's clear what the wound was. When somebody spends their weekends alone because they're just socially isolated, and they have this one friend that's far away that they speak with on the phone, and they say, well, what'd you do this weekend? Well, not much. It's clear that there's some loneliness going on. So I, the things I talk about are the ones that are obvious. What is not obvious to us or what we don't have the awareness for is to catch those kinds of moments and go, huh, there's something I can actually do here to make myself feel better, to make sure things don't fester. That's, that's the thing we tend to miss, that there is some action that we can take as opposed to just, well, that's the way it is. You have to like deal with it in some way or cope with it or just don't bellyache about it, which I think is the wrong philosophy. So how do people normally handle these? I mean, a lot of 
wounds, loneliness, failure, rejection. We, what do we do? I mean, I feel like we just sweep it under the rug. Tequila. Yes. Ice cream. Masturbation. Those are your personal favorites. Uh, okay. <laughs> Got it. Those are my personal go-tos. No, but, but in, we, we, we really, we try and numb the pain with some kind of distraction. And the distraction usually being, you know, the classic scene in the movie is, you know, the, the, the hero gets dumped by the girl and he goes to the bar to get drunk. Right. I'm more of a scotch guy myself. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Tequila is just a sum. <laughs> but, you know, but, but the idea is we'll do that or we'll go and we'll eat or we'll go and start playing video games and numb out for 12 hours in a row. And it's not that those things are bad, but they are not doing any good. You know, in other words, you're not actually treating what's going on. You're not helping your self-esteem that probably got kicked between the legs. And you're not helping your confidence. And you're not helping your emotional pain. And so you're actually not addressing any of the things that actually hurt. You're just trying to numb out. And that will be great for the time that you're numb. But after you're numb, you have to get back to life. And then you're back feeling bad or feeling unconfident. And you haven't really dealt with anything. So that's my concern about you know, the, the, our go-tos, they're, they're fine um, in that we do them, but they don't really do anything for us. They don't treat anything. They don't heal anything. Right. So not only are we sort of drowning out our pain, but we're, by engaging in these as habits instead of positive or progressive action, we're actually damaging our self-esteem or our psyche in some way. In some ways, because some of these wounds, and not all of them, and we can talk about how to distinguish, but some of these wounds can fester. They can kind of get infected. You know, I, I don't think it's uncommon for somebody who's feeling lonely and they go online and they try and go on a dating website and they try and, you know, and they, they'll, they'll send emails to a bunch of women and they won't get a response. They'll finally get a date. They'll go out. She won't like them. She won't return their calls. And they're like, I'm going to give that a break for a few more months. Yeah, I hear that all the time, actually. People go, oh, this isn't working for me. So I'm I'm on a no woman diet or I'm on hiatus from this or I'm just going to not date for a while. I always wondered about that because I never did that. I was like, I'm going to try all this new stuff and get it to work. But I did once take a break from dating and it was because I was sick of, you know, dealing with the, the negative side of it. And looking back on it, that was a terrible idea. Well, it's a terrible idea for one reason. You know, you can justify it in your head however you want. I'm taking a break for this reason or that reason. But what you're actually doing is avoidance. What you're actually doing is feeling so raw inside that you're avoiding putting yourself in any kind of situation in which you'll feel disappointed or rejected again. So it's actually about avoiding emotional hurt. That's what that action is. And you can justify it however you want. Now, some people might say, okay, you know, I've been on so many dates. I'm not really meeting anyone serious, maybe I need to slow down. It's a different thing. But when you're deciding to, you know, after getting dumped or after getting ignored or after feeling rejected to take a break from something, then you're really avoiding. Now, I'm not suggesting to just jump back in. I would jump back in in a different way. I would tweak things. If you're sending all these emails and not getting a response, I would really look at your profile or your approach because clearly there's something there that isn't working that you absolutely can and should tweak. But what I am saying is that you should also tweak the fact that you're in some kind of hurt at the moment, that your confidence is hurting, and that you should probably spend a little bit of time beefing that up because that will do much, much better for you when you're on your next date and you feel more confident and you feel more in control and you feel less tentative, that'll do you much better than taking a break. And when you come back to something after you've been avoiding it for a while, you're just way more anxious about it. You don't get more confident, you get less. Right. That's true because you're at that point rusty. You don't know the drill anymore. And because if you haven't been on a date in three months and then you're going on one, you're not thinking, eh, it's just, just another date. We'll see how it goes. You're thinking, all right, this is the only date I've had. 
in three months, and I really hope it goes well, and my hopes are up for this guy or girl, and it's got to go really well. And I hear this from, especially from my female friends a lot. I think male friends are less likely to share how excited they are about dates uh, generally, but a lot of the women are like, he seems really cool, and he's great on paper, and he just looks really good in his online profile, and I'm thinking, why do you care? I mean, you'd go out with guys all the time. Oh, no, I, I, you know, I took a break from that. I just decided to enjoy being single for a while, and da-da-da-da-da, and I'm thinking, that's weird. I don't get it. Maybe it's a girl thing. And I remember asking about it, but I think you're right. It was just, she, she got the girl I'm thinking of in particular, got sick of meeting duds online. So she stopped dating online for a while, went back to it. And the first guy she met online, she got her hopes way up. And then it just, when they met in person, it was like, meh. And she was really disappointed, even more so than she would have been if she just met this guy as one of the two or three guys she went out with you know, per week while she was still doing it, she wouldn't have cared. This one, she was down for a week and a half, two weeks about it. Look, and you're completely right. It's because she took the break that she, you know, she really escalated in her head the importance of it and then was prone to disappointment. But, but really the whole break was about, you know, the fact that she was, something wasn't working for her, something she wasn't feeling. She was meeting duds. She was disappointed or feeling rejected. I, you know, and really when somebody says, oh, I'm just taking a break to enjoy being single, I'm not even sure what that means, really, because when you're still single, even if you're dating, it takes a while to be unsingle. So I'm not sure what joys and pleasures you're being prevented of, you know, when you're dating. You know, right. you can certainly have fewer dates and enjoy whatever that is. But to me, that's what I mean when I say people find excuses and justifications, but it's really about avoidance. Yes, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think there is something to be said for if you're going out, especially if you're a girl and you're listening to this, guys have fewer problems with this. But if you're getting five online dates per night, and you're spending less time with your family and friends, you might need to cut it down because you're not getting a balance between the people that love you and care about you and random strangers off the internet or that you meet in real life, however you meet your dates. But if you're just trying to enjoy being single and you're not dating anybody and it's been weeks and weeks and weeks, yeah, you're right. It's a rationalization for, I'm so tired of looking at people online, I give up for a while. And you're right, it's pure unadulterated avoidance and nothing comes of it. And here's another thing. And I, I talk about this in the book, you know, and I, I, I say that when, when you have the flu and you've been in bed for a week with the flu and you get out of bed and you're wet and your legs are wobbly, you're like, Oh yeah, my, my legs are wobbly because I had the flu. My muscles are weak. Now, if you have just taken a three-month hiatus from dating, well, your relationship and your dating muscles are going to be weak. So, in fact, it's likely you're going to screw up that date in some way. You'll either be overeager or you'll be too timid or you'll be too anxious or something because our relationship skills, how we relate to people really in every sense of the word, how we relate in terms of relationships, how we relate in terms of dating, how we deepen our bonds when we get to know someone, all of those are skill sets and we need to be able to practice them. And when we avoid them and put them on the shelf for several months and really sometimes years, they are rusty. And when they are rusty, we have to understand it's not that we are undesirable. It's not that we are a loser. It's not that we are incapable. Our muscles are weak. We have to strengthen them. We have to go on a bunch of dates before we start to get the hang of it. We have to remind ourselves and we have to beef up our confidence and our self-esteem so we can be ourselves more naturally on the date rather than trying to be the, the person we think the person across the table from us wants us to be. You know, I mean, a lot of times I hear from people that they, that they went out on a date with someone and they were so not themselves that they forgot how they're supposed to be for date number two because they forgot that person already. You know, and I'm like, what's the point of that? And so eventually you'll have to be yourself and eventually they'll realize that you're someone else. What's the point of not being yourself? It's a matter of chemistry. Provide the right ingredients to see if there is chemistry. Don't fake it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Those are great points. I want to jump back actually to the idea that sometimes these wounds can get infected. Uh, for example, we'd talked a little bit before the show here and you'd mentioned chronic loneliness is a risk factor for other things. And I've talked about this on the show as well. Uh, in my episode, do men suck at friendship? It was a great, a great show with a lot of feedback. Men do tend to suck at friendship. And we found in that show via a study that the, the guest had there that chronic loneliness actually is a health risk that is equal to, and I don't know how they measure this, but smoking lots of cig- like a pack of cigarettes every day. If you're chronically lonely, a pack of cigarettes a day, you'd have to try really hard to smoke that much. And if being passively lonely is that much damage to your, your physical health, I mean, that's alarming. It is alarming. It actually, it increases your chance of an early death by 14%. So chronic loneliness is really a true uh, risk factor for health. It increases your, your risk of cardiovascular disease. It increases your risk of getting Alzheimer's. It increases your risk of the Alzheimer's progressing more rapidly if you do get it. They're just one risk after another that loneliness uh, really creates. Now, why that is, is because when we are social animals. I mean, we, we just, we, we evolve that way. We are, we are, we evolve to be in tribes and packs, as it were. We are social animals. And so when we are feeling isolated, and let me actually just say that the definition of loneliness is an entirely subjective. Um, It's whether you feel emotionally or socially disconnected. It's not about whether you're married. It's not about whether you seem to have a lot of friends. It's not about whether you seem to have a big family. It's whether you feel connected or disconnected. And if you feel emotionally disconnected or socially disconnected and and certainly if you feel both, that's the impact that loneliness has because it creates an internal amount of stress which is ongoing. Stress hormones are being released constantly into your bloodstream. But what I talk about in the book about loneliness is it creates a problematic psychological mindset, which is very self-defeating. It starts to feed on itself in such a way that people start to evaluate the friendships they do have more negatively. They evaluate the relationships they do have as less valuable, and they start to actually push away the very people who could be alleviating their loneliness. They come up with a lot of self-defeating behaviors, such as, oh yeah, I got invited to the party, but I probably won't know anyone, so I'm not going to go because they feel so raw. They Again, they, don't, they can't tolerate the idea of going and feeling rejected. But then if they force themselves to go, then they'll park themselves by you know, the, the hummus and the vegetable dip with a scowl on their face and be surprised and go, you see, no one came up to talk to me. Well, you gave up such a negative vibe. Of course, no one came to talk to you. You parked yourself in the corner and scowled, but they're not aware they're doing that. So they're creating all these very self-defeating behaviors to protect themselves against further pain because they're in such pain in the first place. And so emerging from loneliness is actually a difficult thing because you really have to catch these self-defeating behaviors. You really have to look at what you're doing and you really have to look at the perceptions that you have that are incorrect, that are telling you there are no opportunities when there are. Interesting. With that problem folds in on itself. It collapses in on itself. You do sit there when you're lonely and then it becomes comfortable because it's what you know, right? So instead of going, I've really got to break out of this and change, especially if you have no one around you to help you with that because, you know, you're lonely and you don't have a lot of friends, you're actually going to continually isolate yourself and become even more and more and more lonely. And do you think, this is sort of maybe tangential, do you think people who are, all the people who are lonely actually realize that they're lonely? Because I feel like there's a lot of folks that don't 
even know it because it's been their way of life for so long that they don't even realize that loneliness is is what's happening. They think either they're bored, that they're so busy with work. I mean, this it's the avoidance again, right? They're thinking, oh, I'm really busy. Or some people just maybe don't even know. They don't even realize. Look, some people, I certainly think a lot of people don't realize or a lot of people, as you said, it became so habitual that it's normalized for them. And so they don't think of it as unusual, even though they're paying the price for it in terms of their health. The loneliness uh, has shown to suppress our immune system functioning. In the book, I talk about the study that was done at college where they looked at incoming freshmen who got the flu shot. And as part of the health questionnaire, they asked them if they were feeling lonely because, you know, they just left home for the first time. And then they looked at the impact of the flu shot and the students who identified themselves as lonely had a much poorer response to the flu shot because their immune system, their literal immune system was suppressed because of the loneliness. And, and, and that's why it's such a health risk because literally our immune systems don't function as well. Well, some people don't recognize that they're lonely, and some people are really just afraid to confront it within themselves or certainly to admit it to other people because there's a lot of stigma uh, attached to it. Wow, that is fascinating. All right. And what about just people who are maybe not... Not loneliness, because a lot of people are going, oh, I'm not lonely, I have tons of friends, you know, I, but this isn't the only psychological wound that can fester, right? A lot of people, I have a lot of people who write us email here, hundreds of people actually every single day, and they send me things like, I love your show, it's really great, you know, th this is getting me thinking positively, and this is working really well for me, I love it, I can't wait to do this new thing with this new knowledge, and then I get other email that's like, well, you know, this works for you because X, Y, Z, and you know, I got divorced three years ago and it's taken a toll on me. And I totally believe that it has. But I think that there's just some people that really have a tendency to brood, dwell, let things ruminate faster. And, and this has to decrease your immune system and have increased health risk, right? I mean, you'd mentioned this as well in your book, that this can cause serious heart disease, depression, substance abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Rumination or, or brooding. Let's just define what it is. I mean, as a psychologist, people always say to me, well, I'm just thinking things through. I'm just thinking about my feelings. You know, surely as a psychologist, you must be happy when people think about their feelings. And, uh, you know, it really depends how we think about our feelings, because that this manner of self-reflection, there are two ways to do it. There's an adaptive way and there's a maladaptive way. And the adaptive way to do it is when there's something that's troubling you, that's bothering you, that's upsetting you, you know, you, the, the breakup you can't get over, your, your boss yelling at you in a meeting in front of other people, whatever the thing is that you keep replaying and over and over in your head. The idea is think it through to try and figure it out. Figure out what you can learn from it, what you need to do differently in the future, what actions you need to take, how to see it in a different perspective. Oh, yeah, the boss yelled at you because a few minutes before that, they made a suggestion which you didn't like, and so you embarrassed them in front of the team, so then they embarrassed you in front of the team. Ah, lesson learned. Don't contradict the boss in the meeting, and he won't yell at me or she. So, you know, you, you, once you figure that out, once you know... Once you have the learning there, then it really lowers the internal tension that that scene creates and you can move on. When you reflect about things in a maladaptive way, then you're just replaying the scene over and over again. We all had these friends who three months after the breakup still want to talk about that same breakup conversation or still want to talk about what the person really meant or why they might have really said. It's been months 
get over it or move on. They're just replaying the same thing over and over again. Now, why that's a dangerous thing is because it really fosters this pattern of stewing instead of doing. It really fosters passivity. It really fosters this idea of that you're a victim and all you can do is think about how you got victimized. Because each time you think about that upsetting thing, you're getting distressed all over again. You're getting upset all over again. You're feeling victimized and hurt all over again. And you're doing it to yourself. It, it can become really addictive that it just keeps popping into your head. And what you're not uh, trying to think about it, but it just keeps occurring to you. So you keep going through it and through it. So that's a very, very negative pattern. Like you said, it creates so much stress, it predisposes us to cardiovascular disease, to depression, to, uh, you know, to, to alcoholism, to eating disorders. It really does a number on us. One study, which I thought was really alarming, was that they looked at women who found a lump in their breast, and they divided them into women who had a tendency to brood and ruminate, and women who did not. And the women who had the tendency to brood and ruminated waited on average two months longer to make an appointment with their doctor than the women who did not have that tendency. In other words, they were so used to just thinking about things and not taking action, they waited two months longer after finding a lump in their breast, which is a critical amount of time. And so it's a very, very negative pattern that we really have to break. When you're thinking about the same thing over and over for days and weeks and replaying the same scenes over and over, you're stuck. You have to do something to get out of that because it's really damaging to you. Wow, that's great. Pretty much, I think everyone in the world has probably gone over a breakup or a negative event over and over and over at some point in their life, even if it was in high school or something. When you're young, those traumas, especially when you're young, those traumas seem so magnified relative to what they actually are. And that's why you hear the expert, but I think that's why you hear about young people you know, doing really drastic things, hurting themselves and things like that because they broke up with somebody in eighth grade. Whereas as an adult, as a mature adult, you just kind of realize, well, this didn't feel good, but it's not the end of days, right? As an adult, your life is so much more complex and there are so many aspects of your life, past, present, and future. So whatever that is takes a smaller space relatively than when you are 14 or 15 or 16, and that is 90% of your existence. So when it happens at that age, and that is pretty much all you're about it is a much bigger blow than when it happens, but you still have your job or you still have your relationships and your friendships and your family and your responsibilities. It, it's, it has a smaller space, a mental space, emotional space within your general makeup. So it's a little less painful, though I really should say, I mean, I don't want to say one thing about these kinds of breakups. They, they did this study, which I found brutal yet fascinating, in which they asked people they, they asked the volunteers who had a recent extremely painful breakup. They, they took these volunteers, they paid them. They had them bring a picture of the person who broke their heart. They had them lie in a functional MRI machine that looks at what's happening in your brain. And they had them stare at the picture when they're in the machine and replay the breakup. Because they wanted to see, well, what happens in your brain when you feel rejected in that way? And what they found was really fascinating. What they found was the exact same areas in your brain get activated when you get rejected in that way, as get activated when you experience physical pain. In other words, the rejection pathways in our brain piggyback on pathways responsible for physical pain. And as a proof of concept, they then did a study in which they made half the people feel rejected and unbeknownst to them gave them Tylenol and half the people did not get Tylenol. And the people who got Tylenol reported feeling less emotional pain after the rejection. They didn't know they had Tylenol. But since Tylenol is a pain reliever, 
they actually it helped relieve their emotional pain after a rejection experience because that's how close it mimics physical pain. Wow, that's scary. Because a lot of us are doing that to ourselves. Every, we're like emotionally cutting or something like that. I guess you can use that analogy. We, we are emotionally cutting. The thing that's interesting about rejection is in some of these studies, put people through the rejection experience, they wanted to see how um, resilient that, that experience is. So they, they made them feel crappy. They put them through the experience. And then they said, oh, you know what? Here's the thing. That person who rejected you was actually a research confederate following a script. It wasn't real. It was a made-up scenario for the experiment. Now how do you feel? And people still felt a lot of emotional pain, even after finding out the rejection was false, that it never really happened. That's how powerfully we are wired to respond to rejection. And in part, what I talk about in the book is that people have to understand because they can get rejected in a mild way by somebody who doesn't really matter that much and it will still really hurt. And if they don't understand that that's just how we're wired, they'll think, well, I must be some kind of major loser if I'm so upset about this person I don't even care about rejecting me. But indeed, that's how we're wired. It's very hard to shake this. It'll, it'll, it stings in a way that we're not expecting all the time because we are wired to be very, very responsive, to experience it as physical pain. We are wired so that it really gets our attention. And, and for that reason, we experience rejections as extremely painful. What we do that's problematic is that we then go and become very self-deprecating and use very negative self-talk and actually make the wound worse. That's, a, that's something we do that's really... And, and we'll never do that with, you know, we'll never put literal salt in a cut, right? We'll never sprain our leg and decide that's the best day to run a marathon. But when our self-esteem gets wounded, we usually then go and pummel it even further by looking at all our faults and everything we did wrong and why am I such an idiot and why am I such a loser and I wish I was more of this and I wish I was more of that. It, when we have emotional wounds, we often go and then make them substantially worse, which is extremely unfortunate and obviously something we shouldn't do. Wow. So what do we do instead? I mean, it seems so difficult to sort of avoid. It's not necessarily a trap, but it seems like if we're hardwired to do it, I mean, how do we, how do we get through it? So first of all, you need the knowledge and the awareness. And the awareness comes down to this. If you know, for example, that your self-esteem is hurting because you just got rejected. And, and by the way, I, 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 in, in the book, I talk about self-esteem as an emotional immune system because it is an emotional immune system. When our self-esteem is higher, we are more resilient to experiences of rejection, failure, anxiety. We, we feel those less and we get over them more quickly. So having higher self-esteem, not being narcissists, but having higher self-esteem really does buffer us from a lot of these pains and hurts of daily life. So the idea is when our self-esteem just got a body blow because we just got rejected by someone or we just failed at something, then what we should have in mind is, oh, my self-esteem is in the toilet at this moment. I need to revive it. I need you know, to reinforce my armor, to, to beef up my emotional immune system. And if you have that in mind, then it's about what can I do to revive my self-esteem after feeling rejected. And I can give you one example. In the book, the way I do is I talk about rejection in one chapter, failure in another, etc. And in each chapter, I give a list of treatments that people uh, can use 
to uh, address the emotional wounds that, you know, rejection or failure, whatever it is, creates. But I'm going to give you just one example from the rejection chapter um, that I think people can use because I want them to have, like, you know, a tool that they can go to. And so... Um, Here's the example. When you need to revive your self-esteem, let's say you just got dumped by someone, you've been dating, and you're really hurting. What you need to do, rather than you know, lament that you're not tall enough or blonde enough or rich enough or whatever it is, um, do this. Make a list of qualities that you know you have that you know are valuable in relationships. It could be you are emotionally supportive, emotionally available, a great listener, a great cook, uh, that you plan great outings, that you're really good at uh, encouraging and being supportive, whatever the list is. It can be a long list. I would suggest get 10, 15 items on there. And if you think you don't have 10 or 15 items, give it a few minutes and you'll be able to come up with them. You know, like what makes you a good relationship prospect? So write those things down, the things that you think are meaningful. Once you've had that list, choose one item from the list, let's say the fact that you're very loyal, or let's say the fact that you're a great listener, and write a brief essay, like two paragraphs, a 10-minute essay about why that quality is important, how you've exhibited it in the past in relationships, or how you might exhibit it in the future in a way that somebody else will value. Now, doing that exercise, it takes 10 minutes, maybe another five for the list. It's a 15-minute exercise. Why it's really important is it reminds you what you bring to the table. It focuses you on what your strengths are, what you do have to offer, and it takes your mind away from all you don't have to offer. And so it really is useful for making you feel like, you know what? There is a lot I bring to relationships. Screw the other person. I'm still a good catch. And it's a much better gambit than sitting around and dwelling on, well, maybe I needed this to be, you know, in a bigger bank account or, or more hair or whatever, you know. So it's important to revive your self-esteem. Now, that kind of exercise is called a self-affirmation. You are affirming aspects of yourself you know to be true. And that's a valuable thing. I contrast that to positive affirmations, the, the Stuart Smalley look in the mirror and tell yourself you're wonderful kind of things, because those are actually found to be not useful. Oh, really? Why are affirmations not useful? And I, I believe that. I think it's, it's kind of a funny cliche. Here's why. And, and, and again, it's not all affirmations. There's positive affirmations, which is the general, I will be successful, I'm loved, those kinds of things, versus the self-affirmations, which you are self-generating based on qualities you actually know you have. Why the positive ones, the generic positive ones that we see you know, at the bottom of emails and on refrigerator magnets, why those aren't useful is because when we look at studies, when studies have looked at positive affirmations, they found the following. There is only one group of people that really benefits from positive affirmations. And those are people with high self-esteem, ironically. Yeah. In other words, the people with high self-esteem can look in the mirror and go, I'm great, and go, yeah, I am great. But when your self-esteem is low and you're telling yourself you're attractive and desirable and everyone wants you, when your actual feeling is I'm unattractive and undesirable, that statement falls so much outside your actual belief system that you automatically reject it in your subconscious mind. It just reminds you that you're not. And so it actually makes people whose self-esteem is low hurt. It makes them feel worse. And people tend to turn to positive affirmations when indeed their self-esteem is low. So that's when it's most damaging to them. That's when they typically try to use it. And to be clear, our self-esteem fluctuates. I mean, it's like having a good hair day or a bad hair day. You know, I mean, you can get up one morning and feel great, and you can get up one morning and feel like crap, and 
you just woke up, nothing really happened. So our self-esteem fluctuates minute to minute and hour to hour and day to day. But when it's low and we turn to those positive affirmations and tell ourselves that we're going to be really, really successful when we're feeling really, really unsuccessful, we're just going to feel worse as a result. The better thing to do is to self-affirm, to look at those qualities that we have that will make us or could make us successful. And again, write the essay. And don't skip the writing because this is a psychological exercise that you want your brain to process it as, as absolutely as possible. And if you just do it in your head, it doesn't get processed in a fundamental way. If you do the writing exercise, it does. So the writing is kind of important. All right, back to the show. Okay, that's cool. Because I know a lot of times people won't do coaching assignments that we give them like, hey, do a journal. I need to hear, you know, your thought process and stuff like that. And they'll make me like a YouTube video or they'll go, ah, let's just go over it on the phone or I'll just leave it in your SoundCloud inbox. And so I'm thinking, ugh, this isn't the point. I want you to think through this and writing is like the perfect way to do it. And, you know, we're always trying to go, oh, you know, I'll just do this really quickly in the bathroom mirror or in the shower. And it's not the same thing because it's not that you're writing it down to memorialize it. It's so that you can actually get this going inside your head. And exactly. uh, we're always trying to look for shortcuts. Can't blame us there, but you're right. It does have an important connotation or at least an important link to the brain. The, the analogy that I use when people say, oh, it didn't work for me. And I'll say, well, did you write it down? No, I did it in my head. I'll say, you know, that's like saying I'm really hungry. I'm going to imagine what food I have in my fridge. I'm going to imagine cooking it and I'm going to imagine eating it. And wow. I'm still kind of hungry because I actually didn't go through the actual motions of doing the thing. So it, as in, you know, you can imagine eating food. It's not going to sate your appetite and you can, you can do it in your head in terms of the self-esteem exercise. It's going to have the same empty impact. The writing really as, uh, utilizes different aspects of your brain, creating the list, writing it down, thinking it through, utilizes so many different areas of your brain that it actually has the necessary impact. To do it in your head is not sufficient. All right. Excellent. So what about failure? I mean, a lot of people listening are entrepreneurs they're, or wanting to be entrepreneurs or, or just going into school and things like that. How does failure affect us? Because I know a lot of people avoid it like the plague as well, and that's no good. Well, people who avoid it, because, I mean, a fear of failure can kind of set in very, very quickly. Here's an interesting study I, I speak about in the book that they did. They asked people to kick an American football over a goalpost, and it was an unmarked field. And then they asked them to estimate how far away and how high up the goalpost was. And then they divided the people into those who were successful and those who were unsuccessful. And the people who were unsuccessful estimated the goalpost at being significantly further away and significantly higher up than the people who were successful. Now, they're all standing on the same field. They're all looking at the same goalpost. But that's what failure does to us. It distorts our perceptions so that our goals seem further out of reach than they did before, and our abilities seem less up to the task than they were before. And so we have to be very careful with failure because it can really affect us in unconscious ways so that we'll find, for example, mechanisms to avoid trying again because we're really that afraid to fail. We've taken so much of a blow to our confidence that we'll really find all kinds of excuses to not pursue what it is we're trying to pursue. So with failure, it's very, very important to realize that we, literally there's going to be these perceptual distortions that set in. And there are remedies for them. There are things we can do to set these distortions 
right, so that we are not looking about things in a skewed way, so that we are not thinking about things in a skewed way. And so you actually have to do some kind of rehab cognitively after a significant failure so that it doesn't impact you. And it's not rehab of six months. It's just a few exercises. But you really have to do something to realign your perceptions so that you don't get convinced you are incapable of doing something that you are, in fact, very capable of doing because you are going to feel convinced that this thing that you wanted to do is too difficult or more out of reach or probably you won't be able to do it. You'll start talking yourself out of it. You'll start, you know, setting the stage for future failure, which is actually going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you really have to address the impact um, of uh, failure. Sometimes somebody will go to college, uh, fail at their first midterm and drop out because they feel oh, it's too difficult for me. Right. That, was one, that was one midterm. Yeah. One midterm. And there is a huge attrition rate uh, after freshman year in college. I mean, I think it's, it's double digits. I don't know if it's 20%, 30%, but it's very, very, very large. And all those people are people who didn't do well and didn't have strategies to really realize that they have to change something in their systems as opposed to the fact that they're literally incapable of going through school. And how do we counteract those distortions? Because, yeah, we distort those perceptions big time. I mean, what can we do about that? Is there something more to it than just keep in mind this is one small piece? I mean, it's hard to do that in the moment when you're dealing with this like crushing defeat academically. Well, actually, I, I'm, I'm not saying go look at the big picture. I'm saying actually delve into what happened. Because here's what you need to do as, as a general theme. You need to focus on aspects of whatever the thing is that are in your control. So, for example, you the midterm. What was in your control there that you could do differently next time? Probably better preparation. Probably better effort. Probably, you know, better studying before. Probably you could get more rest than you did. Probably you could go to the professor uh, at office hours and make sure you get the things that you're struggling with. Probably you could ask the teaching assistant for some help. Probably you could go to the writing center to get some help in terms of the writing assignment. There's a lot of tools that are available to college students. They don't tend to use them because they tend to think, I'm not smart enough as opposed to, no, 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 it's an adjustment from high school to college. It takes a while to figure out this new terrain. So you tried, you didn't do well, now you need to tweak. And for my uh, sense of things, it's about always about, well, what can you tweak? What is in your control? You didn't get the promotion. Sometimes people will say to me, I didn't get a promotion, I got passed up, but the boss doesn't like me, I don't have a chance of getting a promotion. So no matter how good the work is, they won't like, you know, they won't give it to me. And I'm like, well, then the goal should be making the boss like you. In other words, whatever the scenario is, there are ways around it. I truly believe that thing that you can succeed at anything if you just persist. Now, yes, if you're five foot tall, maybe not in the NBA, but there are very few things like that. Most things require persistence. Most things require figuring out how to get around the hurdles that are there. So if that's your approach, then it's just about, oh, I met a hurdle. Now I have to figure how to get around the hurdle as opposed to now I have to give up the goal. And so it's really important to focus on what you can do, what's in your control, rather than focus on the things that aren't like the boss doesn't like me, because even that is in your control. Yeah, that is truly in our control in a lot of ways. And, and maybe it just comes to, you know, starting over somewhere else. But I think we do focus all the time on things that we can't control. And, and so you're saying that that creates further damage that creates feelings of helplessness. I mean, there, there were studies that they did with people where they gave them an exam that was, looked like a simple exam, and there were two groups. One of the group got the simple exam, and the other group got the simple exam, which was actually impossible to do. It looked simple, but there weren't good answers 
And so they failed at it. Then they gave them another exam, which was the same, a different version of the simple exam, but this one was solvable. And the first group did it fine and really easy stuff. The second group got these easy tasks and they failed at them because they were so convinced from the first go around that they couldn't do something extraordinarily simple. And so we can get convinced really quickly that we're incapable of something. And when we are convinced, we indeed will be incapable. But we're not incapable. We're just under some kind of you know, delusion that we can't do something which will make us fail. So we really have to address that distortion, that delusion. We really have to remind ourselves about what is in our hands and what we are capable of. Otherwise, we'll give up, get passive, we'll feel helpless, we'll feel hopeless, and we'll get nowhere. Excellent. So what about some of these other general like self-esteem? I mean, we were mentioning earlier, it's like an emotional immune system and things like that. And we damage it ourselves more than other people damage it. And, and one of the things that I suggest in the book for that kind of thing is I, you know, you'll sometimes, as a therapist, people will tell me what's in their head. And sometimes it's upsetting to hear what's in someone's head, not experiences they've had, but how they think about themselves. And, well, I'm just such a loser. I'm just such an idiot. I really don't deserve, you know, like this really horrifically abusive uh, language. And I say to them, you know, sometimes these people will have a child and I'll say, would you, would you ever say to your child that they're a loser, that they're unworthy, that they don't deserve happiness, that they should fail, that they deserve to be treated? Would you ever say that to a child? And, and look at me horrified and say, no, I would never say that to a child. So then why is it okay to say to yourself? If you would never say that to a friend, if a friend came to you with the same situation and you would tend to be supportive and compassionate, why aren't you supportive and compassionate to yourself? What's the difference? What's the logic of being so self-punitive? And we make up all kinds of excuses, but none of them are actually logical. You know, like, oh, it'll lower my expectations for next time. Like, yeah, it will lower your expectations. It'll also lower your confidence. It'll lower your intelligence. It'll lower your ability to use the, you know, the, the brains and the personality you have. So it'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's all it will be. There is no good that comes out of this very self-negative, deprecating, self-abusive talk, but we do it all the time. So we really have to use this device of self-compassion. We have to just imagine a friend in the same situation, and the same thing we would say to a friend who's upset, we wouldn't go to a friend who just got dumped and say, well, you know, you got dumped because you're a loser. You kind of got dumped because you're really kind of unattractive, and, and really you're boring. But we'll yeah. say that to ourselves. I mean, sure. and Whatever we would say to that friend, that's what we should say to ourselves. We should not be any more abusive to ourselves than we would to anyone else. You know, it's, it's funny because uh, I've said this on the show years and years ago, and I can't remember where I heard it. I want to say Sean Stevenson or something like that. But it was if people talked to their friends like they talked to themselves, they would never have any friends. Absolutely. I mean, that's very, very true. And the, the correction there is talk well, to yourself, there's no loss there. People are afraid, well, well, it'll just make me vain or it'll make me unaware and then I'll, then I'll get blindsided. And I'm like, no, that's not a miracle thing. It's not as if if you're compassionate to yourself, you'll suddenly walk around feeling, you know, that no bad will happen to you. You're not going to get brainwashed, for goodness sakes. You're just going to feel a little less bad and you're just going to feel a little bit more in touch with your actual skills, your actual abilities, your true you, you know, and there's no loss to be had by trying to, I wouldn't go saying to yourself, I'm the genius in the world when you're not the genius in the world, but don't go saying to yourself, I'm stupid when you're not. 
Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thanks. Is there anything you want to leave us with? I mean, there's a lot in here. I think people are really going to examine the way they talk to themselves and the way that they handle rejection and failure. Yeah, I guess, the, the, yeah, the, the, the one thing I want people to, to really kind of have in mind is that there is, you know, we, we all have dental hygiene, right? We all brush our teeth and we floss. And we all get up in the morning and see how we're feeling. And if we have the sniffles, we might dress more warmly or have some warm soup or warm fluids. We tend to monitor our physical health. We tend to monitor our dental health. There's no reason to not start monitoring your emotional health. It, it, it doesn't make you weak. It's not something that you shouldn't have to do in the same way that you can be the most masculine, manliest person. Uh, if you get a cut, it'll get infected if you don't do something about it. It has nothing to do with masculinity. It has nothing to do with self-esteem. Cuts will get infected. And our emotions are the same way. Tend to them. Be aware of them. Ask yourself at least once a day, how am I doing? Do I need to do something for my emotional health at the moment, because is it lagging in any kind of way? And certainly when you experience some kind of emotional blow, be it rejection or failure or loneliness or guilt or any of these things, then realize there are band-aids, quote unquote, that you can use that will take you five minutes, 10 minutes of these kinds of mental exercises, sometimes a writing exercise, but you can do something very quick to bandage that wound, it will hurt less, it will damage you less in the long term, it will make you more emotionally resilient going forward. It's a really worthwhile investment. And if you have children, it's something you can teach to your children because it will be extremely empowering uh, to them. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. This has been really great. And of course, again, we'll link to the book in the show notes, Emotional First Aid. Start applying it now because whatever age you are, you're probably that many years too late. Great. And thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Wow. Okay. Lots of stuff there. I almost had to wrap things early just because there's so much stuff going on here. We never really handle these emotional wounds, even as adults. And it really does give those things a chance to infect and fester in the thought process behind things like rejection and failure and loneliness and numbing ourselves with bad habits that damage our self-esteem. I found really fascinating, especially why we're our own worst enemy in terms of low self-esteem, what we can do about that. And of course, chronic loneliness, how that's the same as smoking and how rejection is the same as physical pain and why failure creates those feelings of helplessness. These are all things that we need to fix. All of us are doing these probably in some small way. So when we can spot that and look at the damage that it's causing and then fix it, I think we're all at a great advantage after that. So plenty in here for me and for a lot of AOC fans and clients. So I hope you guys dug this as much as I enjoyed recording it. We'll see you next time. Special thanks to you guys for listening. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know, jordanh at theartofcharm.com. And of course, boot camp details there as well. Go ahead and email or call me. Honestly, that's the best way to get in touch and I'll give you everything you need to know about our programs here in LA. If you guys are listening but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, go ahead and make the change there because getting your shows delivered free to your phone or computer while you sleep is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. Just go to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and search for The Art of Charm. That's it. And if you guys want to write us a nice review, we'll love you forever there as well because it helps other people find us, and it's really important to keep our show ranks up. So tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. 
Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.